Would you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. And we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verse 30, all the way to chapter 10 and verse 4. So Romans 9 and verse 30 uh, into chapter 10 and verse 4. In your reading, especially if you think about the, uh, the Pauline epistles, the writings of the Apostle Paul, you may note that um, there's a frequent metaphor that Paul seems to always have before him when he talks about various things of the Christian life. And, and the, the imagery that he usually has is that that relates to athletics. There's the, the metaphor of um, you know, running a race, endurance. Um, you know, he talks about a prize or something of that nature. And we typically, our minds go to, you know, Philippians 3, where he speaks of that. Um, he also does it in the pastoral epistles, where he talks about, I, I have finished the fight. I, you know, I fought a good fight. I finished my race. You know, I've kept the faith. And so all of that is imageries that relates to the, um, athleticism. And that's actually one of the things that he's going to do here in our text this morning. He's going to use athletic imageries to think about the pursuit of righteousness. Um, he's going to use athletic imagery also to answer the question that is really perpetual from Romans 9, 10, and 11, is why is it that Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? And so that's a specific question that he's asking, but it also, I think, has broad implications for us as we think about that same question, not only as we think about why Israel has rejected Christ and why they continue to reject Christ, but also, why is it that people in general reject the Lord Jesus Christ? And so those, those are some questions that have been asked in uh, Romans 9. That Hopefully we've been getting some answers to them. And now as we approach Romans chapter 10, there's going to be kind of a shift in, I guess you could say, the view of Paul as he thinks about this question. So he asked this question, why is it that Israel has rejected Christ from the perspective of God? And... He, he pits it in the idea that Israel demands this answer. Uh, we are your people. We are children of Abraham. You, we have all the privileges. We have the law. We have the covenant. We have the promises. Why is it that you are rejecting us? Or how is it that you reject us? And basically God's retort was, I'm God. I'm God. I can do whatever I please. So there's this really this emphasis on the sovereignty of God as it relates to uh, salvation. So as we, as we move into chapter 10, there's going to be a different perspective. It's not only in the means about God and, and how he works, but also with respect to Israel themselves and their responsibility and the responsibility of all people. When you think about, especially in the questions where God makes the statement, I will have mercy on whomever I please, and I will harden whomever I please. Who is it that God hardens, and who is it that he has mercy on? And I think those questions are going to be answered very clearly as we approach chapter 10, that the person that God has mercy on is the person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the person that God hardens is that person who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we move out of Romans chapter 9, where the issue is God. God can do whatever he pleases. And now Paul is going to bring it closer to us, to maybe our understanding of how this has actually played out in our own lives, in the lives of people around us, 
is that people are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God has rejected Israel. Because they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Regardless of all the privileges that God has given them, they have failed to understand that those privileges, the law, the covenant, the promises, Abraham, all of it points in one direction. And that's to Jesus. And they've totally missed the point of it. And they've rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Paul is, in this section, Paul is going to use these athletic imageries to help us understand this a little bit better. So let's look in Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. And here's what God's word says. It says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? So the question being asked, why have they not attained righteousness? So verse 32 answers that question. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And then in chapter 10 and verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? To everyone who believes. Of course, in Paul's mind, he's thinking both Jew and Gentile. All people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that transpired in our service thus far Thank you for the songs that we have sung as we have glorified you and your greatness. And God, as we come to this really monumental time and our worship service, really the pinnacle time, as we open up your book and through the preaching of your word, here you are, savingly present. And so as your word goes forth, by the work of your spirit, through your son, Jesus Christ, save your people. Save today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin with um, Romans 9 in verse 30, Paul resorts to a familiar way in which he introduces a topic, a way that he advances a topic by asking questions. He's asking a question. In fact, this is the same question that he's asked for the last six times, this, this is the sixth and final time that he's going to ask this question that we see in verse 30, what shall we say then? So obviously all of that has to do with what he said previously. Everything that he said from Romans 9, verse 1, all the way to verse 29, in light of everything that he has said, what shall we say then? And he does this to introduce his discussion. So he uses these questions for a rhetorical effect. A lot of times the questions that he asked are rhetorical questions in nature in which they have an expected answer, that you should know what the answer is um, without even asking you. He 
He words the question in such a way that it's obvious that it's an answer is either yes or it's no. But the way that he uses the question here, he does this to introduce a discussion or to continue to advance the discussion. And what he's wanting to explore is what I believe is some striking irony that has been hinted at, especially in verses 6 through 29. As unbelieving Israel, I want you just to think just for a moment that you are Israel, that you are a first century Jew, you are immersed in everything that relates to Israel. You have been told that you are a child of Abraham. You can direct, your family tree goes all the way back to Abraham. You've been immersed in the covenants, the laws, and the promises and everything. You've been told over and over again, you are God's special people. You were elected by God. You, you are God's people. You have nothing to worry about. Just keep pursuing the law as you're pursuing it, and everything's going to turn out fine. And then you meet somebody that maybe, a lack of a better of a theological term, you meet a party pooper. And that party pooper is Paul. And he is rehearsing the history of God's people. And as you're listening to him rehearse this, you're finding something that your ears and you're leaning forward and you're listening to everything that he's saying and you're finding out something that is completely opposite of everything that you have been told. So as, as, a, as a first century Israel who does not believe in Jesus Messiah, you're reading this, you're hearing this, and you begin to notice that you've been told all of your life that you're a child of Abraham, that you come from the lineage of Isaac, but as Paul speaks of some of these words, you find out that you actually have more in common with Ishmael than you do with Isaac. And then he moves on, he talks about Jacob. Yes, Jacob's one of my fathers too. And then you learn that you have more in common with Esau instead of Jacob. And then he moves the argument further. And he speaks about the Exodus event. Pharaoh and the Egyptian and, and uh, Israel in Exodus. He's like, surely I'm going to be put in the category with the Israel and the Exodus event. But then you learn that you actually have more in common with Pharaoh and the Egyptian than you do with Israel in Exodus. And so there's this massive irony that's transpiring. In fact, we get to the end of Romans chapter 9, and he quotes Hosea, the book of Hosea. And he says, I will call them my people who were not my people. So in other words, he's pointing to the fact that you as a Jew, as Israel, you were my people, and now you're not my people. And God's people start becoming those who were never God's people to begin with, the Gentiles. And so this is really mind-boggling to you as you're hearing Paul rehearse this and unfolding this, and you're thinking, what is going on here? And so now all of a sudden, it's not it just Paul is just a massive bearer of bad news. It just goes, it just keeps getting worse. And now you read down here and you find out this in verse 30 that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, unbelieving Israel, who has been trying to pursue righteousness for thousands of years, have not received righteousness. So Paul now tells them that these Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it, and Israel who pursued it religiously, with zeal, with passion, have not attained it at all. 
And as a way to explain the pursuit of righteousness, he gives these athletic metaphors that's being used. So if you'll look in verse 30, you have the word uh, pursue. You also have obtain or obtain, not attaining in verse uh, 31, stumbling that you see in verse 32, shame in verse 33, which is a, a word for defeat. And then at the end of this section, which is in chapter 10 and verse 4, is the word end, which can also mean go. And so the imagery here is of a race. And you're in this race for righteousness. Israel's in this race for righteousness. And as they are running this race, as they are, are passionately and with great zeal running the race for righteousness, they find out they can't, they can't obtain righteousness. They can't finish to go and receive righteousness. And then they learn all of a sudden that the Gentiles who weren't even who didn't even know they were in the race that they received righteousness. And so Paul interestingly he describes Israel's failure to obtain righteousness in relationship to the law. So if you look in verse 32 where he says why because they did not seek it by faith but as it were by the works of the law for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Actually it's in verse 31 where he says, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, notice how he describes the law here. He describes the law in the category of righteousness. He calls it the law of righteousness. And that they did not obtain the law of righteousness. So he actually connects these two ideas together, the law and righteousness. Now, there is this preconception, I think, in a lot of of, people, you know, people who go to church commonly, that whenever you see the word law, that it's always bad. But here we see that Paul actually places the law together with the concept of righteousness. Now, we know that righteousness is good. We need righteousness. In order for us to have a relationship with God, we have to have righteousness. We need to be righteous. We have to have a right standing before God. And yet here what Paul does is he takes what is the law and he takes righteousness and he puts these things together. Now, the... This is, there is a, like I said, there's an unfortunate tendency for us to think that the law is bad. But however, we have actually learned earlier in Romans, especially Romans 7 and verse 12, that the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. And then in chapter 9 and verses 4 through 5, Paul recounts the blessings and privileges given to Israel, which include the law. And now in verse 31, notice the language, the law of righteousness. The law is connected with righteousness. It is not disparaged, but it's actually put on the side of righteousness. And Israel pursued the law for right standing before God, but came up short. So what happened? So if the law and righteousness is put together, why is it that in their pursuit of the law that Israel has come up short? They missed the point of the law. That's the problem. Now, how do we see this in the text? Well, the Gentiles attained righteousness even though they were not pursuing it. They weren't pursuing the revealed law. And as will become apparent in the verses that follow, the Gentiles obtained righteousness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Israel did not attain righteousness means that they rejected the Lord Jesus. The law then was related to and or it pointed to Christ himself. And unbelieving Israel missed this. That's what the problem with the law was. The law was never meant or intended to be 
thought of in a negative way. But the law was intended to point the people to a greater reality, an ultimate, more ultimate reality, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they totally missed that point. And so the problem was not Israel's pursuit of the law. The problem was the way that they pursued it. And the preceding context actually gives hint with the usage uh, back in chapter 9, but which we still are in, uh, with the usage of election and calling in verse 11 and God's mercy in verse 16, which emphasized God's grace. And all of this is contrasted against Israel's claim to be God's people based on ethnicity and merit. You see that back in chapter 9 and verses 11 and 16. So Israel pursued the law out of self-reliance instead of total reliance on God. And so the law was given to remind them, you can't do this. You can't achieve this. You can't have righteousness. And Israel's sin nature yelled back, yes, we can. We're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we're going to do this law by ourselves. And so they totally missed the point of the law and what the law pointed to. And they relied on themselves, and they did not rely on God. Now, since Israel, God's privileged people, had not yet obtained righteousness, even when they passively sought it, sought it well, they, why did they come up short? Well, they came up short because they did not pursue it in the Lord Jesus Christ. They missed what the law was given to us. But Paul answers this question more specifically in verse 32 by noting that Israel did not seek it by faith but by works. Or maybe to put it in a perspective of Romans chapter 1 through 8, Israel refused the assertion that was as old as Father Abraham that right standing before God, justification was by faith, not by works. The justification was by faith and not by works. So Israel cannot rest upon their ethnicity because Paul told them in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes Jew and Gentile alike, that every single person that has ever lived has sinned. And they have fallen short of God's glory. And we also are told that because all have sinned, that, that there's no way that anyone can rest on their work because work is not counted as grace but as debt. And the wages of that debt lead to death. So they missed a point. And I, I still think that is a serious, serious problem that we have today in regards to you know, religion in general or even in the context of Christianity in our relationship that we think that this is something that this is a do, that we've got to do something. Instead of realizing that this is grace oriented. And that everything that we do, every work that we have that is that is pleasing to God, that it comes from grace and by grace. And so there's never an opportunity for us to, to come in here this morning or anything in our spiritual discipline to pat ourselves on the back and say, I did a good job today. I prayed today. I read my Bible today. I came to church today. That's an opportunity for us to give thanks to God 
that he had brought this to fruition in our life. But categorically, across the board, in every religion, at the element of it is a works-based system, a merit-based system. Whether it's Muslims, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism, where the reincarnation it's predicated on how good you've been in your life. If you've done, if you've uh, been very good, then you'll come back as a maybe something better, maybe a, an up, more upper class. If you haven't been very good, you may come back as a toad. But I mean, it's it's all it's all works based, and it's it's infiltrated. Not only you know, do we see it at proliferate all world religion, but it also infiltrates what sometimes is called Christianity. In fact, in our Sunday school class, we are. Um, engaging some of these various Christian sects, uh, these so-called Christian you know, religions, and one of the ones that we're talking about right now is Catholicism. And at the very heart of Catholicism is a merit-based system. But the baby is baptized, and they're free from original sin, which basically means that they're born again, they're regenerated. And now with that state... Throughout their life, they have to have an infusion of righteousness. And by infusion, I want you to just think about if you get a B12 infusion or a vitamin C infusion, that means that your, your vitamin C and your B12 is, is down, and now you need it infused. And so Catholics have to spend their life getting this infusion of righteousness through the various merits, whether it's mass, whether it's confession, whether it's um, uh, you know, various other aspects that they do. It's at the heart of it, it's works-based. And Paul is saying, that's not righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. It's through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, or the gift of God's righteousness, where you become righteous because of Jesus Christ. And so this, this really has important applications and implications for us as we think about Christianity. And there, there's no... There's no way to live a life where you have to try to do more. Because there's no way you can do enough. Because we're talking about perfect righteousness. That's what God demands. Perfect righteousness. And that's the glory and the beauty of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that Jesus Christ came to live and as he lived... He was perfect. He was righteous. And the single greatest act of his righteousness is when he laid down his life on the cross, doing the will of the Father. And so it's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we become righteousness. As we've uh, seen in the song, Solid Rock, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. And so that's, that's where Israel messed up. And that's where so many people today mess up, is they're not looking to Jesus. In fact, too often times, we're talking in the first person when it comes to salvation and the things of, of Christianity. Because I, because I did this, because I have faith, and we need to be talking in the third person, because he, because of Jesus. That's where salvation comes from. That's where our righteousness comes from. So, Let's glory in Christ 
and in him alone. And glory in the cross and his resurrection and the Holy Spirit who, who guides us and directs us and enables us and empowers us to live righteousness. Righteousness, when we're justified by faith, I think this is important to, to remember, is that when we're justified, we are given this glorious gift of righteousness of Christ alone. But this righteousness is also transformative. Is that we become transformed into his image and we start mirroring Christ and his righteousness in our life. So there's no sense of antinomianism in this. Well, I have his righteousness now and I can live how I want to because I'm righteous. It's Christ's righteousness. It doesn't matter. Because if you're living in a way that's consistent to the righteousness of Christ, that may be a sure sign that you don't have Christ's righteousness in you. And so the, we attain righteousness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And this, this is the hallmark of the book of Romans. And really, in a lot of ways, it's the heart of the gospel. And to lose this truth is to lose the gospel itself. The righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So who is righteous before God? And what or who is the means of attaining righteousness? Is it by works or is it faith in the Lord Jesus? According to Paul, according to the New Testament, according to the Old Testament, by the way, according to the law itself, righteousness, justification comes only in and through the Lord Jesus. And then Paul, in the way that Paul explains this is he resorts to the Old Testament to explain Israel's failure to attain righteousness, as we see in verse 32, the latter part of verse 32 to verse 33. Now consider the use of stumbling with the racing imagery Israel is running this race to attain righteousness, doing so with great passion, and while running, all of a sudden, they stumble over something. Who put the stone on the racetrack? You ever, maybe you haven't, but I mean, you think about the racetrack over at the high school, how smooth all that is. You don't give any thought about anything being out there. And then all of a sudden, as you're you're running. I don't know how many people would be doing that in this, this, this uh, congregation. You're running. You're listening to your, your podcast or your music. Uh, if I had hair and I was running, it'd be, the wind would be thrown to my hair. But not paying attention. And all of a sudden, I'm running. And I just stumble over a stone. Who put the stone there? And so this, this is the imagery that, that Paul is giving. There is a stone on the racetrack that's causing them to stumble and lose their balance and eventually lose the race. So what or who is the stone responsible for Israel's rejection, which, by the way, is the same stone that many people still stumble over today. And so the way that Paul does this is he uses the stone imagery from Isaiah 8, verse 14, and Isaiah 28, and verse 16, in the Isaiah context, these te- uh, and in its context, these verses describe the threat of Assyria. In Isaiah 8.14, it warns that God will judge his people, a stone that causes the people to stumble. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, it's a promise that God will deliver his people and cause God a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. So the stone in both of these texts is God. In fact, Peter himself actually takes this same passage in Isaiah image of the stone, the cornerstone, and applies it to the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. The stone is a reference to Jesus. The Isaiah text become a great summary related to Israel who have rejected Jesus as Messiah. 
If ye reject the Lord Jesus, he will become a stumbling stone to judgment. But if you believe in him, he will be a precious cornerstone and will never be put to shame. Put to shame. Now, it's not incidental that these Old Testament texts reference Yahweh. In fact, that's reference God himself, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh as the stone, and Paul references Jesus as the stone. So what does that mean? It's, it's great, important um, understanding of who Christ is. Who is Christ? Christ, the Lord Jesus, is Yahweh himself in the flesh. Yahweh is the Lord Jesus. And so what is what is Israel ultimately rejecting? What is the stumbling stone for them? It is God himself. God himself incarnated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes a stumbling stone to them. And they stumble over him and they lose the race. Now there's, there's an interesting turn of events as it relates to the idea of the Lord Jesus as a stumbling stone for those who reject him in verse 32. And those who believe him will never be put to shame at the latter part of verse 33. The reason that unbelieving Israel stumbled is because of the offense of the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his cross, his resurrection, his enthronement as king is madness. And to believe in it is to bring shame. This is why Paul says... Not just once, but he says this a number of times in his epistles. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because among those who do not believe, it brings shame. Yet while trying to avoid the temporal shame, unbelievers will find shame in the last days, and they will find shame forever. Jesus makes this very clear. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. But on the opposite end, there may be a temporal shame derision and persecution for the sake of the gospel, but when the Lord Jesus comes again, all those who believe in the gospel will sit at the right hand with him, which is a place of honor. I don't think we can really understand what it actually means for, even in the context of our culture today, there is a massive stumbling block and an offense to the gospel. And one of the ways that I, I see this being played out before our eyes is there is a perpetual um, necessity among many Christian pastors and leaders to try to make the gospel less offensive. To try to take the shame away from it. But inherent in the gospel message is offense. And in fact, this was so true in the first century when you think about this idea that they are glorying and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are glorying in an instrument of gross brutality and torture, the cross. Of course, it sounds like madness to them in the first century. I mean, how would, what do you think somebody would say about me if, if I was going around telling everybody about how they can find true life in lethal injection? And the cross is, a, is, is inhumane, it's reprehensible, it is categorically ugly and brutal, and it's, the whole intention of the cross is to bring shame. And here these first century Christians are going through, it's through the cross that you find life and salvation. And people are thinking, that's madness. 
And that's a stumbling block for people to accept. But in that madness is the power of God to change lives, to bring salvation, to bring someone from death to life. And this is still the same problem that we have today. And you may be sitting, I hope you're not, I hope that we're all very open to the fact that, that there are times that we're actually embarrassed by the gospel, and I think it's true among you, even though if you don't think that, that it is, I think there's an obvious shame. And, and the reason I say this is this is why we don't regularly share the gospel with people. Because we're embarrassed by it. This is why we pray, we ask God, give us courage, give us boldness. Because we're embarrassed about what people are going to think about us when we tell them this stuff. It, that, and that's really at the heart of the problem of why we don't really share the gospel is because we are ashamed of it. I mean, this, this is good news. This is the best news that you can ever think about. It, it's amazing about how oblivious we can be when we share news about various things in our life or maybe we think we're sharing about how great our kids are and our grandkids. And you don't care if anybody cares. You're going to share that with them. But when it comes to the gospel, there is this hesitation to it. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because inherent in it is this, this, same, this shame. It's, it's why we make excuses. We say that it's not the right time. Or we say, I need to build a relationship with that person first before I can share this gospel. Why do you need to build a relationship with them? Do you not believe in it? Do you not really think that it's the power of God? Because there's shame. And so th- this, is, this, is, this is inherent in the gospel message. And we offense and, and everything, we give it unvarnished. Because in it is the very power of God. And we don't need to be worrying about whatever kind of shame or kind of derision or what people think about us now. The only person we need to be concerned about what they think of us is God. Is God going to be honored by what I do? Because I'm more concerned about the shame that I might experience in the last days than I am about the shame that's present here. And it's a, it's a battle that all of us have to fight and we have to ask the Lord uh, to help us in that regard. But the, the essence of what we're finding here in this, in this text is that righteousness comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the law, that everything in, in the Old Testament, everything as it relates to the progression of salvation history from the beginning to the end, it all points to the culmination of one thing, Jesus Christ. That he is king, that he is Lord, that he brings salvation to all things. And that's why we actually learn in the, in the book of Revelation that when was the lamb slain? Before the foundation of the world. And so Paul answers the question of why. Why is it of Israel's rejection? They do not believe in Jesus. And because they don't believe in Jesus, they don't receive righteousness. And here we have these Gentiles who aren't even in the race. And when the gospel message comes before them, 
They're not even thinking in the category of the law and the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, the gospel message comes before them. And by faith in Jesus Christ, they become righteous. They become what the Jews want to be. Because they don't have faith in Christ. And so this, this is the, the heart or the essence of what it means in relation to the gospel. About being righteous. Having that right standing before God. And it comes only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. By faith in him. And, and faith, categorically, is not a work. Faith is, is recognizing that you cannot do anything. That it is God by his spirit who convicts you and gives you the ability to respond to the gospel in faith so that you can be righteous. Righteousness is required to enter into God's kingdom. It's required for everlasting life. And the only one who has ever been righteous is Jesus. And he offers this righteousness to all who will call upon him. Let's pray.